Philippians chapter 1. Last week, as we ventured into chapter 2, I told you that this was only going to be an introductory message from chapter 2, particularly verse 1, simply because I had to do some spade work so that you and I could see the link between chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Philippians. And I told you last time that in chapter 2, when Paul is talking about our unity together as a church, he talking to the Philippians about their church, my talking to you about our church, we need to know some things about unity to be sure. And we need to know some things about harmony to be sure and some things about love. I grant you that. But for what purpose and by what motivation are you and I going to be unified as a church? In what way and for what purpose are we to have harmony with one another? And what's the purpose, ultimately speaking, of our expressing love to each other. Oh, I know that it's for our encouragement. I know that it's for the sake of our lives together as we are brushing shoulders with one another, as we see each other each week, as we worship together. All of these things are rich and they're glorious and they have their grand place in the design of God as He works with us as a local church, to become closer together, relationally, spiritually. But all of those things, the unity, the harmony, the love that we are supposed to have for each other is not for the ultimate purpose of our growth merely together. It's ultimately for the purpose of our collective harmony and unity and love for the sake of showing our oneness for the sake of the gospel to the world. You say, how can you make such a definitive statement? Look back at chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. After Paul has prayed for the Philippians, and after he has talked to them about his own imprisonment, And after he's told them that even the imprisonment that he's currently incarcerated in a Roman dungeon, a Roman cell, that it's actually turned out for the greater advance of the gospel, and that his life, whether he languishes continually in that prison cell, or like he hopes and believes, he'll be released for the sake of his ministry, But whether he's alive or whether he is dead, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Because of that, because of that mindset, because of that desire, and because of that hope, for not just Paul but for all of us, he says this in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner, Philippian church, only let your manner of life Be worthy of what? The gospel of Christ. Not just for the sake of yourself, 
not just for the sake of your family, as important as it is for you to be a Christian and for you to have your family members be Christians, and not merely for the sake of the collective whole in a local church like Bethany Church on the Hill, for us to be genuine Christians with and for one another, as important as those things are, notice the outward trajectory of what Paul is saying. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel or the faith which is the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And he immediately interjects the idea that when you live the gospel out in your lives, both individually but certainly collectively, there will be opposition. There'll be opposition just to the very message that Christ is Lord and that Christ is the only way to God and that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life and the only way to God is through Him. Those are fighting words. Those are, those are words in which the challenge of other religions and other secular ideas and ideologies and the very worldview that someone has who isn't a Christian is going to say, that's very narrow, that's very exclusive, that's something that you as Christians always seem to bring up, and in your bigoted ways, you're always saying, we're the only ones who have it right. We're the only ones who speak the truth. We're the only ones who have a relationship with God because you say that only such a relationship with God can happen through Jesus Christ. That's too narrow. That's too confined. That's too rigid. And so Paul is arming them. He's discipling them. He's teaching them. And he's also modeling for them that this gospel will bring opposition. And so he says this, verse 28, middle part, this is a clear sign, this opposition, to them of their destruction, but for you, you Philippian believers, your salvation. And he reminds them, and that salvation is from God. For it has been granted. Now he's going to explain what this opposition will entail. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So the gospel will inevitably include some kind of suffering, some kind of opposition. And Paul reminds them about himself in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, because he's still languishing there in that Roman prison. All right, that being the case, which you now know very well from Philippians chapter 1, and we've gone over this in great detail, that's the intro to chapter 2. Remember, there were no chapter divisions and no verse divisions when this was originally penned, right? So the context remains the same, and now he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
Any affection and sympathy make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And that's where we stopped last time. And I told you that in the Greek text of Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, that sense of the word if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, I told you that that's a kind of a Greek first-class condition that means something like this. If it is to be this way, and it is, if it is to be this way, and it is, or maybe even translated, since it is this way, or because it's this way, then you ought to do something about it. And so what he's saying is, I, Paul, am confident that you have encouragement in Christ. I'm quite sure that you have comfort from love, and I'm completely assured that you have participation or fellowship in the Spirit. And you remember I told you last time that this exciting dynamic of having each member of the Godhead who is resident within our lives through Christ in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God is utterly thrilling. You and I actually have, with all the opposition in the world, with all of those who don't like our message, who won't hear what we have to say, who reject our message, you and I still have the opportunity, both individually as an individual believer and collectively as Christians together at Bethany Church, we have the opportunity right in the midst of such opposition to be encouraged in Christ, to be comforted by the love of the Father, the Father is implied there in that middle part of verse 1, and we actually possess the very fellowship, the very participation of the Holy Spirit in all that we do. Now, I may not ask for a show of hands, but if anybody's excited about that, I think you should say amen. Amen. I think you should, you should respond, even if you don't do outwardly, you should respond inwardly. Like I said last time, I'm about to come out of my shoes with joy. Because for every opposing word, for every nervous moment, like our missionary friend told us just a few minutes ago, if you have the opportunity to speak a word of Christ, it can be nerve-wracking. Especially, someone might say, in the good old U.S. of A., where everybody knows the Christian story, where everybody understands the gospel. And I say, do they? Do they really? Oh, they may understand the facts that Jesus Christ died, that He was buried, that He was raised again on the third day. They, they may agree that that is what Christians assert, but don't tell me that that's actually what I'm to believe and the way I'm to live in light of Jesus Christ. And so when you go up to such a person, and maybe you are developing a relationship with them, and maybe you are having the opportunity to meet with them regularly, they could be your neighbor, they could be a workmate, a schoolmate, whoever it might be, and you have the opportunity to talk with them, and you know that there's a line, there's a sort of imaginary spiritual line 
between talking about the weather, talking about sports, talking about sewing, talking about whatever it may be, there's this imaginary line that can never be crossed back over again when you tell them about your relationship to Jesus Christ and your invitation for them to receive Christ. And that imaginary line is so hard to cross. Now, so hard in what way, Lance? Well, it's nerve-wracking because of the sense of potential rejection. I reject not only this gospel of yours, I reject you. You're no longer a friend of mine. Don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. That's just a, a, a religious, phony, sham worship that you're involved with. And you might have someone who could come against you pretty vigorously. Or you might have someone who says something like this. You know, that's fine for you. If you need that sort of moral crutch in your life, that's fine for you. I'm, um, I'm pretty self-sufficient myself. And um, I don't need something like that. I- I'm pretty happy with my life. Well, that may be their response. But in God's good economy and by His grace, and through His sovereignty, there may come a time when sudden crisis hits their life. And they may, in fact, come to you and say, now, what were you telling me about that gospel again? Or it may be that you have very little opposition at all with with this person or that person. And maybe God has given you what we have commonly called a divine appointment, where you and I can can talk to somebody, either someone we've never met or maybe someone we've perhaps known for decades. And God has orchestrated the events. I call it the spiritual alphabet of gospel witnessing. You say, what's that? Well, God might want to use me to bring someone from spiritual letter A to spiritual letter D and no more. And then some other faithful believer takes them from D to L. And someone else may be able to be taking them from L to Z. And they have the privilege, the awesome opportunity to see someone pray with them to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We've already heard this morning about 82 new believers for whom people cross that imaginary spiritual line of no return so that that person could have the joy of knowing Christ like the one who is witnessing to them has the joy of knowing Christ. And so, yes, you might be able to say in your heart, this is so nerve-wracking, but for the joy I might have of seeing someone come to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to take all of the nerve-wracking and terrorizing of my open words to them. And I'm going to replace that with the joy of knowing that even if there is opposition to my message, I will stand in a long line of those who were opposed, including the Apostle Paul. And even if I have someone like Paul in my heart, as someone who will encourage me to keep going and keep talking and keep witnessing and keep living in such a way that someone will come to Christ as a result of my desire to see Christ's kingdom built, 
I have not only the Apostle Paul, but I have the very encouragement in Christ to speak a word of the gospel. Christ encourages me to do it. He's the Lord of my life and He wants me to do it. And I have encouragement because I'm number one in Christ. And number two, when I witness for Christ, I'm always with Christ. And what's better? Christ is with me. And not only that, I have comfort from the love of God. I have God's love at my disposal. I can live and speak in such a way that the very love of God, God the Father, compels me, propels me to talk to others about Christ. And if that weren't enough, I also have the very fellowship, the very participation of the Spirit's leading in my life to where He's guiding me into gospel conversations. And now what I need to do is simply speak a word about Christ. Because Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing a word about Christ. That's how faith comes. Someone cannot come to Christ unless they hear a word about Christ. You say, well, that's all good and fine, but that sounds like you're still talking about an individual witnessing to another individual. That's true. But do you know that when we come here for our equipping to learn to know the Bible better, to learn to know how to defend Scripture better, to be able to be equipped in this setting and Sunday schools and Bible studies and individual teaching and discipling. We have all of those things at our disposal so that here we are equipped so that when we go out of this room and we go into a watching world, we are equipped for the sake of the evangelization of the lost. And the collectivity part of this uh, the, the kind of solidarity that you and I have, even though we're going out individually, is that when we come back here, we know that we have other brothers and sisters who are praying for us on our mission. They know, the Varbergs, that they have prayer partners extraordinaire who are praying for them, holding the rope for them, as it were, as they go down into the mind shaft to teach the gospel to others. This is going to require a kind of solidarity and a kind of individualized pursuit, but with collective prayer support and a kind of encouragement and a kind of steadfastness that you and I know we desperately need as we go out individually. And perhaps it may not always be individual. Perhaps we can do it in an inquirer's Bible study. Perhaps we can have two or three of us talking with two or three others, or maybe just one. Whatever the case may be, we're seeing the encouragement in Christ. We're seeing the love from the Father. We're seeing the participation or fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And there's one more for this morning, and I want you to see it right at the end of verse 1. If there is any, and there is, any affection and sympathy. If there's any affection and sympathy. What does he mean by that? I think what he means by that are that there are two graces 
that come from our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it seems as though Paul is communicating now in this fourth statement that this affection and sympathy we have received from God is to also motivate us, it is to be an impetus for us to extend such affection and sympathy for others. In other words, the affection and the sympathy that you and I derive from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is to so be effusive in our lives, individually and collectively, that we are walking affectionate and sympathetic people toward others. You know what that would do in terms of quote-unquote race relations, ethnicities, people that are different from us, people that are different from us socioeconomically? Do you know that if I have affection in my heart, if I have sympathy for others, it can go a long way in the transcendence away from all the stuff like what I look like? My skin color, my finances, my facial features, my house that I live in, my car that I drive, doing the comparison game with with others, all of those things, and those are just a, a few of the examples, they are transcendently unimportant in the grand scheme of things. Isn't that right? They're just transcendently unimportant. We're talking about the encouragement of Christ. We're talking about comfort from the love of God the Father. We're talking about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about if we have, and we do, Paul says, any affection and sympathy, and that is, I think, for one another. If we have affection for each other, and if we have sympathy for each other, then we have it all. We have it all. We have absolutely nothing that lacks in our supply to be the most able purveyors of the gospel of Jesus Christ in and for our world. We've got it all. No wonder he says here in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Complete my joy. Have the fullness of joy because you and I have all that we need. And what kind of affection is that? I'll tell you what kind of affection it is. It's the kind of affection, that particular word, that Paul says in chapter 1, verse 8, these words. For God is my witness. This is what he's praying for them. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You say, what kind of affection is it? It's the very affection of Christ Jesus. What kind of affection is that? You know that in Matthew chapter 9, a couple of other places... Jesus looked out on Jerusalem and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And it says that he was moved with compassion in the bowels of his very being. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of affection where you and I are so moved, it's such a visceral reaction in our souls that the affection of Christ Jesus means nothing less and everything more about the kind of, of affection we have for each other and for a lost world. That can get us going. That can get us motivated. I've told you before, uh, there's a, another church in Moorpark, my good friend Errol Hale, Pastor's Grace Bible Church in Moorpark. 
And they, though they live in Moorpark, go quite frequently to the Oaks Mall in Thousand Oaks, and they are allowed, both by code and by a relationship with the Oaks Mall, to set up a small table and speak to people and give some literature about the gospel. We ought to be getting in on that because we're Thousand Oaks people. We ought to be getting in on that. And I love the fact that a Moorpark church is doing that in Thousand Oaks. But I say, we need to outdo you men. That's just one example. That's just one example of how the gospel needs to go forth with the affection of Christ Jesus. We are looking out on the Thousand Oaks Mall and we're seeing all those people who walk by and we are to say with the affection of Christ Himself, these are people like sheep without a shepherd. They need the gospel. And it's not just that sort of scary, nerve-wracking, knee-rattling kind of speaking to someone cold turkey. Hey, we've got enough opportunities with people that we've known for a long, long time, and we've never spoken a gospel word to them at all. And then he says sympathy, and this will be the last thing I say before communion. Sympathy. You know that word is actually plural, and it's actually also used in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and it's plural there as well, and that's the word mercies. Mercies. I mean, sometimes we think of the idea of sympathy being something like this. You know... I have sympathy for so and so. I'm so sad they're in the state they're in, right? Physically, financially, whatever it might be. I just have this sympathy for them. Sometimes we might even say, you know, I went through the same experience of myself, so I have empathy for them. Here's the word that's translated in our Bibles as sympathy, but it's actually the word mercies. And when Paul says in Romans 12, same author as Philippians, when he says in Romans 12, here's what I want you to know. Because of the mercies of God. What mercies, Paul? Well, you look in chapter 3, and you look in chapter 6, and you look in chapter 8, and you look in chapter 11, and either with the very word mercies, or certainly a synonym thereof of the word mercies, he says, as a result of all the things that I've told you in the first 11 chapters, I'm telling you, based on those kinds of mercies, the mercies of your own salvation, the mercies of the grace of God in your life, the mercies of the forgiveness of sin, the mercies of obedience to Jesus Christ and no longer having sin master over you because of all of those mercies you and I ought to be in light of such mercies giving our lives as living sacrifices and here he says in Philippians 2.1 if you have any affection the very affection of Christ Jesus and if you have any mercies the very mercies that motivated even Jesus Christ to go to the cross and give himself for sinners like us then you and I have every opportunity and every responsibility to do exactly what Philippians 1.27 says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the trajectory of the outward look of your life, not just for you and I to be Christians on Sunday when we are with each other, and that's a glorious time, and it's absolutely critical for us to do so, but now we're armed and equipped to go out that door so that we are living our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Home, work, school, wherever it might be, and in whatever context we might find ourselves, we want to be worthy gospelers, right? Worthy gospelers.
Let's pray and let's ask the Lord to challenge us to be what I've just preached this morning. Father, as we celebrate your table, we are called upon by you because of the encouragement of Christ and the comfort of love from God the Father and from the fellowship of the Spirit to have the kind of affection and sympathy that speaks of this worthy gospel living and speaking from our lives. We know we're going to get opposition. We know we're going to have people who are going to turn away from us They may even turn against us, and it may even be quite volatile. But we are asking that you would give us such love, such affection, such sympathy, such mercies when we reflect on our own salvation. For me, over 40 years. For others, longer than that. For some, not so long. And you've given me and us so many mercies. We want to return to you. Not as though we could ever repay you for such things, but we want to return to you our gratitude for being a part of your kingdom and to be able to spread this gospel far and wide, not only by how we live, but through our lips. This is our desire. This is our hope. This is our prayer. Equip us individually and then make us this corporate vital force in the world for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.